You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, I just, uh, beginning a new sermon series here, three weeks on transitions called Seasons. And I want to begin with what we leave behind. Happen to notice that today is September 23rd, which is the autumnal equinox. It's a season of change. We're saying goodbye to summer. We're saying hello to winter. Daylight is receding. The darkness is growing. The air is cooling. The leaves are flaring and falling. Campus is filling, and the flocks of Canada are coming down, settling in our trees on their way south. It's a season of change in so many ways in our culture. It's a season of change in the church of Jesus Christ. It's a season of change in many of our lives. I mean, many of us are starting somewhere, new school year, maybe a new relationship. Maybe we're having to go through the pain of divorce. Some of us are retiring. Some of us have aging parents who are falling into our care. Change is all around us. Change is constant. The Greek philosopher said you can't step into the same river twice, and I suppose that's true. Change sometimes is challenging. We don't always welcome change, and I'm here I'm speaking to Presbyterians, amen? (laughs) They say nobody likes change except a baby, and even it cries. Um, Sometimes change is a good thing. Sometimes we want change. Uh, Learning is change. Growth is change. Healing is change. So for three weeks, I want to sit at the feet of Jesus together with you and see what he has to teach us about how we navigate the changing seasons of our lives, how we face change well. And as I say, I want to begin not with the new season that you might be coming into in your life today, but with the one you're leaving behind. Because in order to begin well, you have to know how to end well. So today, let's sit with Jesus as he interacts with a man who was sick for 38 years, Uh, a man who Jesus tries to get to let his past become his past and to end well. Would you open up your Bible to chapter 5 of the Gospel of John? You'll find that on page 866 of the Pew Bible. Our text today is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's Word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you could say, thanks be to God. John 5, verses 1 through 9, listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew, Beth Zatha, which has five porticos, and these lay many invalids blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been lying a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up. Take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. 
This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Do you want to be made well, do you? A therapist, a seasoned therapist, once told me after 40 years of helping people try to grow, this is the single most poignant question any of us will ever face. Do you want to be made well? Now, it's interesting. This guy doesn't say yes. Did you notice that? He doesn't actually say yes. For a long time, I kind of thought that this was uh, implied, that this is sort of an, almost a rhetorical question to which the answer is obvious, and, and we just assume that he's going to say yes. But J- Jesus does not make that assumption, not for him and not for you and me. He asks. He has to ask because he knows that you and I will a time and time again say no to change, no even to good change in our lives, no even to his change and healing. Now, why? Why does this guy not say yes? I think it's because of the past. I think it's because, here's my theory, that he's stuck in his past. Notice the time, 38 years. Did you see that number? It's a little detail. It kind of sticks out at me. Why 38 years? Well, it could be just a historical detail. He happened to be sick for 38 years, and so John includes it. But many commentators suggest that there's an allusion to Moses and God's people in the wilderness, when they were so stuck in their past, they couldn't or wouldn't move forward into God's new future. Remember, the first generation of Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were brought through the wilderness to the promised land, and God said, are you ready to go? And they said, no. And so they wandered for 40, for, for 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years. Um, until the second generation comes, and Moses now, just before he dies, stands with that next generation on the, the, the bank of the Jordan River saying, let's get it right this time. Let's say yes this time. And here's what Moses says in, in the context of Deuteronomy, which is three sermons he preaches to Israel on that bank. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14, Moses says, and the length of time, he's, re- he's rehearsing the history in the wilderness, and the length of time we had traveled from Kadesh Barnea, the beginning of that wilderness journey, until we crossed the Wadi Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation of warriors had perished from the camp. In other words, I think John is suggesting that this man is embodying the resistance of God's people in the past to change. Israel has a past, and it's not always one in which they embraced God's promise. And this man has a past, too. 38 years of his own history. He doesn't say yes to Jesus. Now, he doesn't say no. You could could point that out, and that'd be right. He doesn't actually say no to Jesus. But if you read the account as it extends beyond verse 9, you realize that his real answer actually is no. 
This is subtle to see, but what happens is he ends up finding himself falling into league with those who are setting out to persecute Jesus and eventually to kill him. He aids and abets Jesus' enemies. This, John points out, is a turn in his gospel. Everybody else has been saying, yes, Jesus, John tells his readers right at the beginning of the gospel, be watching for this, because John says, he's the light shining in the darkness. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. That's the prologue in chapter 1. And then we start to watch people, Andrew, Peter, uh, Nathaniel. They're saying yes to Jesus. Nicodemus, chapter 3, we're not sure if he's saying yes yet. And then chapter 4, Samaritan woman says yes. And then uh, end of chapter 4, father says yes, his son is healed. And now here we are in chapter 5, and we're standing face-to-face with Jesus. And the question is, what are we going to say? Yes? Or is this the beginning of that dynamic? And see, this guy has 38 years of his own history. He, he tells us what his answer is in verse 7. It's not yes, it's not no. He tells us a story. He gives us a historical narrative. He goes, well, verse 7, uh, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But by the way, the, the, the pool of Bethesda, which we've, archaeologists have found, you can, some, I've been there, you can see it in, in uh, in Israel today was uh, probably on an intermittent spring, and it would bubble up fresh water periodically, and people associated that with healing power. So you have these five porches the side of a football field or larger, and uh, it's just filled with people who are hurting and sick in various ways. And so I've come here. He's been here a long time, and, and he's telling this story to Jesus, hoping to be healed. But, verse 7, uh, when the water is stirred up, There's no one to put me into the pool. While I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. That's his story. That's his explanation. That's his answer to the question, do you want to be made hell? Do you want to be made well? And it's kind of like, you know what? I don't think it's possible for me. Because I've been here for a long time. And the waters start to bubble, and I say, hey, someone help me. Get me to, and they all help other people, and nobody helps me, and I'm sitting here all alone, I'm crawling, and just before I make it in, somebody else jumps in, and they teach, and all the, the healing powers are gone, the bubbles, the water starts, stops bubbling, and I'm still unchanged. It's, it's as though he's saying, change isn't really possible for me. So I think there's a lesson here for us, and that's that our hurts can become our identities if we're not careful. It's very easy to move from being a person who has an illness to being an ill person. And this guy is a sick man. And he can no longer, uh, he can no more be changed than he can forget who he is because his situation, his past has become for him an identity. His hurts have become his home. And he's stuck in his past. Think about people that are stuck in the past. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm thinking of like the 60-year-old freshman football star. Come on, we've all met him, right? Some of us are that guy, you know? Or the person who's retired and maybe been retired for years, but she has to let you know, you know, I was the managing partner of my firm for six years back then, you know? Or, or you know, I was a pastor, you know? Uh, still trying to live like the general preparing for the last war, like a family member who's never quite overcome the bitterness of being wounded early in life. And there's this root of bitterness, as Hebrews 12 calls it, festering in the heart. And Jesus comes to us and he says, do you want to be made well? 
almost as though the, the, the change is like nothing for him. But the, thing, the one thing he can't surmount is our own unwillingness to get past our past. This is not just Moses standing uh, before uh, this man. And by the way, John is eager to paint Jesus as a new Moses who succeeds where Moses has failed. This is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, God in human form, come full of grace and truth, come to give abundant life, so committed to that, he's going to lay down his life in the process. Do you want to be made well? For me, the first lesson here of this whole series, and the only lesson really for today is this, is to put the past in the past, that you can't really begin well until you find a way to end well, to close that season that's going away into your, into your past. If we don't do that, we'll resist the change. History is important. We're going to talk more about that next week, the, the place of history. But history can also be very dangerous if it becomes a trap, a snare, if we get stuck in it. Here's why that happens. It's because, you psychologists tell us, that change always involves loss. This man, if he stepped into something new, would lose his identity, would lose the slim but comfortable place, the thin comfort of being a wounded place. He'd lose his status at the pool of Bethesda. He'd lose his way of life. And he's not willing to lose that for anything, apparently. Change always involves loss. Now, this is obvious when we bury a loved one, as many of us have done. But it's not so obvious, yet equally true, that that there's loss even in good change, even when you change in ways that you wanted to change. Let me give you some examples of that. You know, the senior will toss her hat in the air at graduation. No more exams, no more papers, no more labs problem sets or loan applications to fill out. I'm free at last, right? But what does she lose? There's also no more cross-country team. There's no more sleeping loft. She loses the charm of dating guys who push couches off of rooftops for fun on a Saturday night. (laughs) But this is where we live. (laughs) You could hit a cyclist. Anyways, uh, <laughs> think of the, 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 the young man who invites his fiancée to marry him. He finally screws up the courage to pop the question. He can't wait to dive into their shared life together. But the day after they marry, the phone just doesn't seem to ring quite as often as it used to. Uh, the guy's never said anything to him, but it's just as though they've kind of moved on. And Thursday nights aren't the same. And by the way, somebody else seems to be controlling the remote control often. <laughs> I, I think of me. I, I, uh, we lived for years as a family of five in an apartment, just renting, trying to save money enough to buy a house in ministry. And finally uh, got a small house. And the woman who sold it to us was just in grief on the doorstep. She was looking around, telling us about it. She raised seven children in this house. And she said, I look, we're very teary-eyed. I'm going to miss this place and all the memories it holds for me. And I, with all my pastoral empathy I could possibly muster, and said, I'm going to miss my half million dollars, you know. <laughs> and I thought, how, I, the question I was, did we overpay, you know? How are we going to shoulder the burden of this debt? Oh, my gosh. 
There's a, there's a cost. There's an experience of loss. Think of the mother standing at the end of her driveway on that first day of school. She cries as her toddler turns his back on her and is swallowed up by this big yellow bus that sweeps their, her beloved child away into the care of total strangers for a whole day. And uh, by the way, she'll cry when that 22-year-old comes back. Um, LAUGHTER but for now, the house is hauntingly empty. There's no little patter of feet moving through the rooms. She weeps. I think of myself when I took our oldest child away to college back in Washington, D.C. It happened to be during Hurricane Irene, and I had great hopes this was going to be our two-day buddy trip to see the capital. But as soon as I got there, he just ran away from me to make new friends and go after this new thing. So I'm sitting there at the Holiday Inn eating continental breakfast by myself. And I go out to war memorials in the driving rain for the next two days, alone. <laughs> or think of the wedding, you know, that beautiful bride. She comes down the aisle, and she goes back out with this boy. Uh, could we call him a man? And the father of the bride sits there. So much of his life has just left the room, and he's in tears. It's what we want. It's the change we prayed for, that we hoped for, that we've been saving for, that we've been yearning for. And when it happens, there's still loss. And when there's loss, there's grief. And when there's grief, there is oftentimes anger. Change, loss, anger. And we may not be aware of the anger. We may not carry it consciously in our mind, but we're going to carry it in our heart. Somewhere deep down inside, there's something inside of us that screams, that bus, or that spouse, or that child, or ourselves, or our world, or our God. See, it seems to me there are two dangers for, for a man facing Jesus in a season of change. And the first is to say no to Jesus. And the reason we would do that is because we see the loss coming. It's called anticipatory grief. And we don't want to embrace it. And we say, no, I'm not willing to pay that price. This man, here's what I know about this man. The day that he's healed, as, as he is healed, is going to be the hardest day of his life. Where will I sleep? Who will I be with? Who will be my people? What am I going to do? Where will I get food? He's 38 years, lived as a sick man, much of that time by these pools. The first mistake we can make is to say no to Jesus. The second is to assume that we've said yes to Jesus when, in fact, we never did. And that's this guy's case. He almost thinks he said yes to Jesus. Why not? He's healed. He got the right outcome. Perhaps he gave the right answer. But that's not the case. All he can really say is, I've been with Jesus. I've been around Jesus. Jesus spoke to me. Jesus changed my life. All true statements. But he never said yes to Jesus. When they come for him to interview him, he doesn't even know who Jesus is, which is a big clue to John's readers that he hasn't got. He's not with the program yet. He hasn't been really healed. Either way, this man saying no to Jesus, assuming he said yes to Jesus, has not put his past in his past. And Father Richard Rohr says, pain that is not transformed is transferred. Can I say that again? Pain that is not transformed by Jesus is transferred. Pastor Pete Wilson says, your past is not your past if it's still impacting you're present. What I'm trying to tell you is I think Jesus is encouraging us to move past, to put our past in the past. 
And I wonder where you find yourself today. I'd be willing to bet that if you give me 20 minutes, I could find a a new season in each of your lives that you're facing today, and I wonder what it would be. Uh, For some of us, it's freshman year in college, right? I mean, you've been the top of your class, the fastest one on your team, and all of a sudden, there are a thousand tops of their class and fastest ones on the team. You're surrounded by people. Maybe you're in a second marriage and you're trying to have to figure out how to not be in the first marriage or live with those same dynamics second time around. Maybe you've got a new job. You're trying to figure out how to adopt new skills or perhaps you need to humble yourself in this new position or maybe you need to promote yourself in this new position. Maybe you're trying to break some habits that just have dogged you over and over again through the past. You want to be released from those Maybe you're living with an aging parent. Dad is just losing his memory, and it's just so hard, and it's angering and frustrating. And yet, you want to get to the place where you could still enjoy a day with Dad, and each day is a gift just the way he is and just the way it is. These are new seasons. And in the context of this, I believe Jesus is saying to you and me, do you want to be made well? And if we're going to say yes, friends, we're going to have to learn to put our past in our past. And here's how I want to suggest we do that. This is the practice for this week. It's to pray our goodbyes. I love that phrase, praying our goodbyes. That's actually the title of a book by a woman named Joyce Rupp. Uh, She's a, a Catholic sister. She points out that the word goodbye once in English meant, God be with ye. Praying our goodbyes. She writes, we may be harshly bruised by life's farewells, but it is possible to be healed. It is possible. If we bring our hurt to Jesus. To pray our goodbyes is to uh, embrace life's partings. It's to entrust ourselves to God, to entrust that one who is parting or that thing that is parting to God and and to entrust ourselves to a new future, perhaps one we didn't welcome and can't even yet describe. Praying our goodbyes is, is about not avoiding loss, not trying to go around it, not trying to suppress it or deny it, but embracing it by doing the work of grief, the hard work of grief. I think for the first time, I'm really coming to understand what it is that Jesus means when he says in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or his brother James, who in chapter 4, verse 9 of his letter says, lament and mourn and weep. The apostle Paul himself writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. Grief. Jesus says mourn. Now, at this point, Jesus comes right up against the culture. Because in our culture, we go, hey, um, look for the silver lining, right? Don't, don't uh, just buck up. Look on the bright side. Soldier on. Jesus says no. Mourn. Understand the loss. Embrace the loss. Feel the loss. Praying our goodbyes. Do it with Jesus. So there are three postures that I would associate with praying our goodbyes. Let me just share these with you quickly. Um, 
The first is to weigh the past. And for each, there's a hand motion. It might help you remember. So if you want, to weigh the past is hands open. It's to, if there was something good in the past, if there is an experience of, of, of loss, it's because there was something of value there. And so I, the first step is really to appreciate that, to give thanks to God for the gift that God gave you in that season of life, to recognize it, to weigh it. You're, you're, you're acknowledging it and counting the cost of the loss. The second is to wave to the past. That's, I'd say, hands down. It's to release yourself into the sadness of the parting, to say goodbye to that good thing, that good gift, to let it go, to take your leave of it and to let it or them take their leave of you and to cry. Weigh the past, hands up. Wave to the past, hands down. And then thirdly, welcome a new future, hands open. Hands are open to Jesus who is ready to heal, who is the good shepherd ready to leave, who is the face of the generous God eager to give you new gifts for this new season. So it means the prayer goodbyes. My wife Anne was 12 years old when she lost her father. One day he didn't come home from work. His plane had crashed. And they had to say goodbye suddenly. Way too early, family of five, who now has to learn how to live as a family of four. It was devastating and cruel in every way. But they turned to Jesus, all, all four of them. And I, I, I can say years later, though they all obviously still carry the loss, Jesus in wonderful ways has made them well. And my mother-in-law, that widow, named Ruth, and she became an artist, and she took up sculpting. And what she loves to say is that, scul- is that suffering carves room in your heart for joy. And that's her witness. What we learn about Jesus is that he enters into our grief. That's the thing. That's the gospel, that Jesus enters into our grief In John chapter 11, as John's witness to Jesus continues, he tells the story of Jesus' own friend Lazarus dying. And that short verse in the Bible says, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. How could he psychologically bring himself to the point of crying? The reason is everybody else around him was weeping. And he entered into their grief. And that's the heart of God. God takes your grief into his heart, and he enters into your heart when you grieve. See, Jesus delays so that Lazarus will die. Martha and Mary point that out to him. The reason for that is Jesus' mission isn't to help you avoid pain and suffering. It's to lead you through pain and suffering. Jesus wants to bring life out of death. When he meets you in your grief, he does it to transform it into new life. Well, let me close by taking you to the end of chapter 5, which is where we need to go. So often the story of the man at the pool of Bethesda is extracted from the context, but we want to see where Jesus goes. He has one more conversation to this man. It's easy to miss it because he's not only speaking to the man, he's speaking to all the folks who are there, and I think he's speaking to you and me through the pages of the gospel as well. Verse 24 and 25, here's what Jesus says. It's a promise for you today if you'll receive it. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word, this is Jesus speaking, and believes him, that's his father, who sent me, 
has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning we stand before Jesus at an equinox. It's an equinox between life and death. It's a vernal equinox because death is passing away and life is breaking in and growing like the dawn. For those of us who put our past in the past, there has never been a brighter future. Let's pray. And would you join me in using your hands and in praying a goodbye? Hold your hands up in your lap for a moment and think about that season of change you're in and what you're losing. Would you first weigh it with gratitude? Gratitude to the one who gave you this gift. And then would you turn your hands over and wave to the past and say goodbye to that gift? Say goodbye to that season. And let it go. Bid it farewell. And then will you take your hands and open them up and welcome a new future. Jesus, we don't know the future, but we know the good shepherd who leads us there. We pray that you'll help us to trust you because, yes, we want to be made well. Thank you. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org.